I'm going to pray and then we'll start to read. Our gracious God, we thank you for the Bible. It teaches us where we get things wrong and our general view is that we do Christianity in church and we get that wrong because, Lord, you speak to us and tell us where we are to be Christians where everyone can see and hear about Jesus outside the church. We pray you'll please help us to get that right and to live that right from now on as a result of studying the Bible together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. I'm only going to go as far as verse 23 tonight. I think I'm going to forget Apollos and go back start again in Acts chapter 19 next week, but um, you can ask questions about Apollos because after the talk we have questions and answers. If you want to ask anything about Apollos, you can ask them, but I'm going to just do Acts chapter 18, 1 to 23, Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Saul and Timothy arrived from Macedonia Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the, that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers 
and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cenchrea he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now I'm going to pause there. The children are going to go out with Natalie, and then we'll get back. Don't shut the Bible, you'll need it open very soon. Let's uh, start. The children have gone well. We only have shot some of them, but we'll make a begin. And to ask at the start, is it okay for Christians to be scared? And that's an interesting question, isn't it? And we kind of are programmed, I think, as Christians to say, of course not, we've got God on our side. But actually, one of the attractive things about the Bible is that it's not about superheroes. It's about people who are scared, and we're going to meet one today. And Christians are scared. Same as everybody else, because when life goes wrong, we worry because the bills have to be paid, and jobs need to be found, and all those other things need to happen. But Christians have one thing extra. Because Christians are encouraged to talk about Jesus, and we're scared to do that. Because... It may just uh, mean that uh, people object to us, and that means that our fear makes us quiet. And we see that in happening in verse 9, don't we? The Lord has to say to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. That's the great apostle, the great evangelist, and God has to say to him, don't be afraid. So tonight we're going to look at what makes us scared and how not to be scared and to keep speaking. Just those two things. The first we're going to look at is, well, what makes us scared? And generally what makes us scared is when I'm not in control of something. I'm generally not scared on the road. I can get into a car, I can drive, it's within my range of competence and I can get from A to B and I do it without fear but after reading about an aeroplane falling out of the sky and various other aeroplanes all being grounded across the world I now sit in an aeroplane and think I'm just beginning to be slightly nervous because I'm not in control and it's a long way down if someone does lose control and it's the same as when I'm a Christian. I'm scared to speak because in the end I'm not in control of people's reactions. They might object and I'm not in charge. And when they object, I'm not always sure that God's in charge given the amount of objection there is and the number of people who seem to disagree. And you're probably like me in that as well. 
we feel scared. That's why it's helpful for us to see that Paul is scared. He's scared in Corinth. He wrote to them, uh, I put it down in your notes, the page number, it's page 952, it's only a couple of pages on, so you might as well go there. And on page 952, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he writes a letter to these Corinthians, the same people in the town that he is just visiting. And in the letter later, he tells them in chapter 2, verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Great apostle talking here. Now people try and say, well, it's not because he was scared, it's because he was sick, and that's why he was trembling. But he's got some fear in there too, because he refers to it, and God is telling him not to be scared in verse 9. It's not just a question of don't be sick. And the reason he's scared is because rejection is guaranteed in a place like Corinth. It's a proud city. And uh, the thing about uh, Corinth is that you can see it's in the middle of some land with sea on either side, which means it's a rich city. It's got two ports. Let's get nearer. And you see that uh, it's a little town with, if you like, a, a foot in two seas. And so therefore trade can come in from different directions by sea. And you can see it's commanding the land routes that go everywhere, the trade routes that go everywhere. And so the money keeps pouring into the city and it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's also a very sinful city. Top of the hill overlooking Corinth is a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, who is Venus, the goddess of love. She had a thousand female slaves, and at night those thousand women go through the town working as prostitutes. And generally, if people are rich, and they've got their own god in their wealth, and they like to commit sin, they're not going to like Christianity all that much, and they're not going to like Christians all that much. And if you don't like Christians in those days, they reject you, and when they reject you, they humiliate you and they hurt you. No wonder Paul is scared. You would be if you were the evangelist in a town like that. And I'm not sure that Paul and, uh, sorry, that Aquila and uh, Priscilla, when they came from uh, Rome were all that confident about God either. After all, you see how uh, there were Christians in Rome, but they've now been chucked out by the Emperor Claudius in verse 2. And it's a fair question, isn't it, to ask, is God really in charge when a mere man like Claudius can stop gospel work in its tracks and expel all the Christians? So gospel work in Rome grinds to a halt. Is God really in charge when that happens? But now you can see in verse 3 that they're in Corinth. And because they're in Corinth, uh, they're able to meet Paul and give Paul a place to stay. They share their home in verse 3, along with giving him a job. 
And now perhaps they're beginning to see that it actually makes sense that they're in Corinth because they're here to help the gospel start and grow in a new place. Maybe now they can see that God's actually in charge in Rome after all. And that's the reason why they're there in Corinth at the start of gospel work being a key part of it. And now they're serving the gospel in Corinth. It's interesting, isn't it, when you see how Claudius expelled them from Rome, he took away their visas and they had to leave. Well, it's worth remembering, if you're a foreigner in this country and they take away your visa and make you leave, just go and serve the gospel in another place. That's what Priscilla and Aquila did. And in verse 5, Paul himself would have been encouraged because when Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy rather arrive, they come from Macedonia and they bring a gift with them from Philippi, which is in Macedonia. And if you know, I put the, the, the reference right at the bottom of the sheet of paper so you can we'll get to it later. In Philippians chapter 4 and verses 15 to 16, Paul is writing to thank them for the gifts that they sent him, financial gifts, which means that he can now go full-time in gospel work in verse 5. So maybe there are these little signs that God is in charge after all, and he is in control, and he is actually helping gospel work to go forward in this new place. Maybe it's not such a bad thing being an evangelist here, but actually it is, if you look at verse 6, because what happens is that as he starts talking, uh, he is opposed and reviled. And as he leaves the synagogue in verse 6, he speaks to them those very, very scary words. Have a look and see. Your blood be on your own head. Why does he say that? Because actually he's wanting to help them to see that uh, a prophet called Ezekiel in uh, chapter 33, it's worth reading verses 1 to 9 later, but I'll tell you the story now. Ezekiel talks about a watchman, like a security guard. And it's very easy being a watchman. If a city appoints a watchman, all they've got to do is to get up onto the wall at night and keep looking and getting cold and keep looking and if they see any danger they blow the trumpet they wake up the city and then it's up the city to keep itself safe because they know the enemy is there and they need to find a way of getting safety under attack so if the trumpet was blown and the city kept on sleeping. That was their fault that they kept sleeping. Their blood would be on their heads. But if the watchman saw the enemy coming and kept the trumpet in its case, then their blood would be on his head. He would be the re responsible for the death of people in that city. That's what Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 1 to 9 says. It's on your notes so you can read that when you get home and see uh, the full story. But that picture of a watchman is the picture of the Christian with the gospel. And when we warn and people do not listen, it is so easy to be tempted to think, well, it's my fault. 
But that's pride, isn't it? Because in the end, what that tells you is that I think I can do the gospel explaining so well that when I've explained the gospel, everybody's going to believe it. But when they don't believe it, it must be that I've got something wrong in the explanation. But what Paul says, no. It's not the watchman's fault. Because how people react is up to them. I can't react for them. But I still have to warn because there's someone I need to fear more than the people I warn. And that is the one who will call me into account and ask me why I kept quiet as he showed me the debts that I was responsible for because I kept my trumpet in the box. And I need to understand how, if I'm not a warning Christian, if I'm not a watchman Christian, it might really show that I'm not a Christian. Because it might just show that I don't really believe that there is a warning to shout out about. That there is no judgment in front coming down the track. And that's why Paul says, I'm not, before God tells him not to be scared in verse 9, he says in verse 6, I'm scared of God and I'm going to tell you because if I don't, your blood will be on my head. But this time, verse 6, your blood is on your head because I've sounded the trumpet. I've given the warning. This is Jesus. He is your king. That's what makes us scared. And the answer is to be more scared of being responsible for the death of people. And so God tells, uh, Paul tells his people in verse 6, their blood is on their heads. He is not responsible for that. But what makes us not scared? What actually makes us speak? And you can see, verse 9, that once the Lord has freed Paul from being frightened of people, and he tells them, do not be afraid, what he then goes on in verse 10 to do is to give him two encouragements that will help him to keep talking. Encouragement number one is that Jesus is with them. Now, you might remember that... Um, when we started the book of Acts, we explained how Jesus was taken up into heaven and he wasn't there anymore, the Holy Spirit came. But the end result of that is that Jesus was no longer physically present, but he was going to be active. Sorry, he was not going to be physically, he was going to be physically absent, but he was going to be actively present. Okay? That's the scene today. Jesus is physically absent but actively present through his Holy Spirit. And they saw him leave, but he hasn't gone away. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he promised his disciples, didn't he? I will be with you always to the end of the age. So go everywhere and make disciples. Because I will be with you. And whenever 
Christians speak about Jesus, he is right there every time. And you will never be able to speak just on your own, by yourself. And it's a great reassurance to keep us opening our mouths that Jesus is there when we open them and he will be there to speak through us at that moment. That's why he is with us, to help us in that way through his Holy Spirit. The second thing is that Jesus has many people in the city in verse 10 again. In other words, Jesus does not see a city full of opponents. He sees a city full of people who are not yet Christians, but who Jesus intends to be Christians. And he will keep his people safe as long as it takes as the people he wants to hear, hear. So keep speaking. Keep speaking even when you're sued. That's what happens next to local synagogue have a whip round and they splash out and get the best barrister they can in town to go to the very top to this man called Galileo in verse 12. Now you may not know about Galileism but let me tell you proconsul is a Roman word for someone very important. Okay and this particular proconsul called Galileo he is well connected you might have heard of his brother. His brother is called Seneca, and he is one of the outstanding Greek teachers of his time, and he is tutoring a little boy called Nero at the time, who one day is going to be their king. This is a well-connected family. They're right uh, uh, at the very, very top of the tree. And in Rome at that time, uh, you can't go and worship any god that you want to worship. The Romans worship their emperor for the most part. You can't have any other king or object of worship apart from him. But in the case of the Jews, they made an exception because Judaism was one of the legal religions of Rome. And therefore, if you were a Jew, you were able to be a Jew and continue worshipping the god of the Bible. But what these guys are doing is they're taking Paul and they're putting him in front of Galileo and saying, well, actually, this new religion, well, it shouldn't come under the legal protection of Judaism because this is very different to Judaism. So therefore, Judaism is protected, but Christianity should not be. And it should be barred and outlawed in the Roman Empire. But Paul doesn't get a chance to, to speak, does he? Galileo takes over. And it's an important court case because, you see, if Galileo rules against Christianity, it'll be banned right across the empire from that moment onwards. That's why they're going to the very top. But Paul doesn't need to say a word. And when Galileo dismisses them, this is not a lazy man in a toga just saying, go away. This is a ruling for the gospel because now a precedent is being set. From now on, wherever you go in the Roman Empire and someone says, I'm not quite sure you should be talking about Jesus, you will be able to quote the top legal man, Galileo, said in a court in Corinth on this day that there was no wrongdoing in Christianity. 
It's just an internal dispute, says Galileo, within the entirely legal religion of Judaism. And every court will listen because Galileo is that important. They've got a passport now to go anywhere after this court ruling. So keep speaking. When one group won't listen, go to another. When they throw you out of Rome, go to Corinth. When the synagogue won't listen, go to the Gentiles. And what's the worst thing that they can do to you? They can put you in prison. Well, if you go to the prison in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, you will find that the man in charge of the pr prison will tell you that even that doesn't stop people hearing about Jesus. All the prisoners in the prison in Acts chapter 16 heard. So the worst thing that can happen to the gospel is not what anybody can do to the gospel. It's what you can do to the gospel. The worst thing that can happen to the gospel is silence. And so Paul keeps speaking. He goes on straight over to Ephesus, which is the capital of a Roman province called Asia. You might remember in chapter 16 at the start that Paul was desperately hard trying to get to Asia. He desperately wanted to get to Ephesus, but God, Jesus said no again and again in chapter 16 at the start of it. And now he finally gets to Ephesus and he's there for one Saturday and they say, you must stay and tell us more. And Paul says, sorry, got to go. If God pleases, I'll be back. There's a ship to catch. And if you look at verses 22 and 23, they are a blur of movement. Because what he does is he lands in Caesarea and then he goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem isn't named in verse 22, but it's the only place you go up to from Caesarea. So that's the place that he's meeting the church. And then he goes down to Antioch, which is where the whole thing started. And then he immediately starts his third missionary trip, going to all the other different places. In just those two verses is crammed the trip of something like 1,500 miles. In just two verses, Paul's going around, talking about Jesus and strengthening people to trust him. It's the speaking of that word that is going on all the time in every place. Now, what's that got to teach us for today? Well, I want to suggest that if you're someone who's new to Christian things, this is God saying to you that if you hear about Jesus but you don't respond to him, then as Paul says in verse 6, those amazingly serious words, your blood will be on your head. What Christians are wanting to do is to say, look, there is a danger coming at us and is coming at us every single day, one day nearer, and that is the judgment of God. Here is the one opportunity when we blow the trumpet to say, I need safety and I want to turn to Jesus. I want to run to him for the safety that only he can give me from the judgment of God. And for those who do that, like Crispus and the others that go and follow Paul and say, this is true and I must take it seriously. For them, there is safety. But that is 
as important as it is. And I want to suggest to you, if you're not a Christian, that you look at words like, these very serious words like, your blood will be on your own head. And to take the seriousness of those Bible words and to say, this really is a matter of life and death about your future. And I plead with you to take it as seriously as that. But let me also point out another thing. Because it may be, or someone who's not new to these things, they are very familiar to you because you've spent your life in church. And if that is the case, can I point out to you that verse 6 is actually said to church people? Because there's more church people resisting Jesus than responding to him. And a sign that a church is not taking Jesus seriously is that it doesn't warn about the judgment that is come, coming. It just tells us, as you will know to many, from many church services you've been to, how to make the best of this life. My friends, that is an unbelieving church. And we need to see that actually the real church will always be the one that is pointing to the, doing the watchman thing and pointing to what God has warned in front of us, asking people to take shelter. And it may be that some people from other churches have come to us who've heard ultimately a gospel of this life and how to improve it, but now you're in the place where you are hearing about warnings like in verse 6, and they're pointing them out to you. But my friend, let me tell you this. You haven't really left that other church unless you aren't beginning to warn people the way that Paul does, as seriously as he does. If the watchman job is still something you're leaving to something else, someone else. So then I want to suggest to you a Christian, the person who wants to show that they are confident that God is in charge. The Christian is the person who is sold out to making the gospel known. And I think there are three ways you can see it being happening in this chapter. The first thing is to do it by speaking. Now it's true that we're not Paul, we're not apostles, we're not unique in that way, he is. But he is unique and that's why he's going from place to place doing the work of an apostle, which is to go to different places and make Jesus known. But you and I still have a speaking role because when Jesus gave the Great Commission and he said, go into the nation and make disciples, he's talking to ordinary Christians. There's no way in which the 12 people in front of him could go out into the world and make everybody a Christian. He's got to be talking to ordinary people. Okay, that's got to be the case. Because sheep make sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. Okay? And you're, if you're part of God's flock, are part of the sheep-making business. And therefore, we are to, to, to do that. And every day, therefore, if you're a believer, is a day you wake up in the morning wanting to God to give you the opportunity to be a watchman, to make his son 
the Saviour known. Look for opportunities, pray for opportunities, take the opportunities as they come. But the speaking task is still ours to do. That's one of the ways in which we are sold out for the Gospel. Secondly, I think in our money. Because Paul is able to go at full time in verse 5, because the Philippians in Macedonia supported him, and they did it often. So if you look at, uh, at Philippians chapter 4, which is uh, just after Ephesians, it's on page 985, page 985, Philippians chapter 4, and verses 14 to 16, I'll read it for you. Um, I mean 982. And chapter 4 and verses 14-16 and he writes to Philippians to say yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians remember they are the ones in Macedonia you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica which is where they were before uh, they ended up in Corinth you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so they keep sending him gifts. And now he's able to go full time. And they could have spent the money on themselves, couldn't they? Anyone can. But when you give to the church, the Philippians go to Paul, they are essentially putting a watchman into play. Doing watchman duty that they perhaps are not able to do in the place that Paul is in and able to the opportunities that he has. So we support the gospel in our speaking, in our giving, and thirdly, in using our homes. That's what Aquila and Priscilla do in verse 3. That's what Titius Justice does in verse 7. So how will you use your home for the gospel? It's a great question to ask yourself as you leave here might be, and some people do this, they leave their homes to gospel work after they die when they've got no other dependents relying on them, and they therefore say, here's a way in which I can make sure gospel work continues in this place after I leave it. Other people wouldn't do something quite as large or as fine as that, but you might want to use a room, if you've got a spare one, to accommodate a gospel worker. That's essentially what Priscilla and Philip did. Or might you invite your neighbours in? Not maybe for a room, but for a meal. So there's time for relationships to grow in a way where Jesus might come out in the conversation that night as you spend that time together. See, there are different ways in which we can go flat out for the gospel, but go flat out for the gospel is what we do if we believe the gospel. Ah, it's okay that in the going out we feel frightened because even apostles are frightened. But choose your fear. Be afraid of being responsible for people dying under God's judgment because we gave them no warning. And uh, remember...
your friend. Choose your fear, but remember your friend. Jesus is right there, and there are people that he intends to be Christians around you. And one of them might be the one that you speak to next. Keep speaking, keep giving, and keep using your home to give people the opportunity to find out more, for you to do your watchman work in a way that might save their lives. Let's pray that God will help us to do that, and then we'll take questions after that. So in a moment of quiet, let me give you one minute to speak to God about what he has been speaking to you tonight through what we've learned in the Bible. Then I'll pray one prayer for all of us and take questions. Well, let me pray at the end of our close, of our, as I close. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. For I have many people in this city. Father, I pray that you would please help us as we go home tonight thinking about what you have told us. Help us not be those who are like the people James tells us, looks in the mirror and then forgets what we've seen and heard. But please, Father, would you help us to be those who go home deeply thoughtful about how we might be more concerned about people dying that we might save, but who will die if we're silent. And please, Father, would you help us to have that confidence, not to see in front of us an estate that in the end will reject Jesus and reject Jesus and reject Jesus. Help us, instead of seeing it that way, to seeing it as a place where there are many who might be your people when they hear about you. So please, Father, will you keep us the church? Not to be those who just like enjoying our company and friendship and in the end stop the watchman work. Please help us as Christians on this estate to be watchmen that go out and save lives and bring people into safety of the kingdom of Jesus. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen.